Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows landlords should be abolished. Today we have Bianca, Zoe, Julia, Kellen, and Laura. And today we want to discuss the plight of being a renter, especially these days as the COVID-19 pandemic has worsened the financial challenges that tenants are facing. We also want to discuss how systems of landlording and renting disproportionately harm black and brown communities and how that harm is made worse by unsympathetic government structures, including housing courts, and how people around the country have taken power into their own hands to fight this. Um, But I think before we discuss anything, it's important to point out that housing is a human right. Hell yeah. Yes, it is. And that (laughs) this fact is incompatible with capitalist societies, where things like housing markets that are primarily motivated by turning a profit still exist. In an article that was published in The New Yorker recently called Cancel the Rent by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, she said, quote, We have to reverse the strange alchemy where markets turn land, concrete, steel, and glass into money, while conversely turning people out into the streets, end quote. And I think that's very well said. Um, And for renters, housing tied to capitalism means things like predatory landlords threatening or going forward with eviction if renters don't pay uh, fees that are often just bullshit. Um, It means likely not even being able to rent a place in certain cities uh, like New York, if you don't earn more than like 40 times the rent, which for a lot of people is just not a feasibility. Uh, It means things like being evicted or denied housing if your credit score isn't like, quote, high enough. And all of those issues have been made even worse by the pandemic and disproportionately affect black communities who have been historically and systemically shut out of the housing markets for decades. Um, We'll talk about this later on, but like due to things like redlining and so many other systemic structures. Yeah. And I also just wanted to add, as we're thinking about the things that are displacing people, that we also have companies like Airbnb that have seriously compounded this issue just over the last few years. Um, This is a big problem in places like New York and the Bay Area, which already have skyrocketing rents. Um, But landlords have figured out that they can, or at least they could back when traveling was a thing. They can make more money charging out-of-towners for short stays than they can charging actual community members for long-term rent. So what that means is that in high travel areas, you have people who own properties taking even more of them off the actual housing market and turning them into unregulated mini hotels. So just when you thought, of course, like capitalism couldn't get worse, it finds a way. And uh, this is just another sneaky, layer. Sneaky bastards. Sneaky bastards, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, agreed. So I guess going off of that, um, talking about the pandemic, uh, across the U.S. right now, 47% of renter households were cost burdened. And that term means that they basically paid more than 30% of their income in rent. And for Black and Latinx communities, that figure is over 50%. Um, In a recent article that came out, and I think it was like over Twitter, it was like discussed a lot. um, There was a statistic that said that... uh, one in four renters hasn't paid rent since March in New York City. And of course, um, that's largely driven by the pandemic. And uh, and there's another statistic that says that one in four people across the nation right now is unemployed. 
Right. And like, if you think about the fact that official numbers are always undercounting, like I saw an estimate that was like, possibly up to 47% of people in America are now jobless. It's just that a lot of those people aren't counted. And it's also made news recently not to keep throwing numbers at y'all, but sometimes (laughs) math is important, that 32% of American households miss their July housing payments. So we're like seriously on the precipice of an absolutely catastrophic national crisis at the same time that a lot of eviction controls that were placed in emergency contexts of the pandemic are about to be lifted or are being lifted. Yeah. Um, Just like something else that's kind of like tangential, but it really annoyed me about that article. It was published by Business Week, the one that reported the one in four New Yorkers hasn't paid rent since March statistic. Um, The headline of that article was... uh, New York City rental market pushed to breaking point by tenant debts, which I just like, I just like hated that. Like, it's it's such a small, I mean, maybe it's not a small thing, but I think the way that media phrases certain things, of course, Mm -hmm. like, kind of puts an angle or like, it kind of displays what their angle is on the issue or what Mm -hmm. their underlying opinions are on the issue. Like this article... Nothing grinds my gears more than when the media becomes so fucking complicit and like just like amplifying all of these things we're fighting against. Yeah. It's also like yeah. those are always the headlines that have horrible fucking grammar because they're trying to like talk around the point. It's like it's just a bad headline other than being wrong. It's like your grammar's bad. Right. <laughs> like man like, stricken by bullet that may have exited a gun <laughs> held by a cop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But this one you were saying, Bianca. Oh, yeah. Um, it just, like, totally frames the problem as a tenant's. Like, it's the tenants being a burden. <laughs> like, it's their debts that are causing this problem. And so it's, like, their up. fault. Which, like, really all of the blame to me, like, falls on, like, predatory landlords, unsympathetic governments who aren't willing to materially provide for the most vulnerable of their constituents. But then this, on the other token, won't hesitate to bail out large corporations. Yep. So it's really yeah. just a matter of what everyone is prioritizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I also think it's really important to explicitly just point to the connection between housing policy and homelessness. When housing is considered a commodity rather than a necessity that everyone has the right to, it basically means that landlords can set prices based on however much they think the highest bidder will pay for it, not what's actually affordable or reasonable for most people. Um, And in cities like New York and San Francisco, this means that there are just so many homes that are owned by rich people and corporations who aren't even using them. Um, There's been some amazing activism in the East Bay by this group that's called Moms for Housing, And they helped to popularize this concept in the Bay Area by pointing out that there are four vacant homes for every unhoused person in Oakland. I think that's just like a crazy number, because if you think about like, literally, there are four times the number of homes we need to house every unhoused person in Oakland. Mm -hmm. Um, And in San Francisco, it's five vacant homes for every unhoused person. Um, The wild thing about this to me also is that San Francisco actually has fewer vacant homes overall than most cities in the U.S. Um, About five or six percent of homes in San Francisco are empty. But in some cities, like a lot of places in Florida, it's more like 15 to 20 percent. So that's just to like give a sense of how many empty houses there are currently in this country. Um, I think the issue has become even worse during the pandemic just because people are dealing with unemployment and reduced employment um, and health concerns, which means that the existing rents that most people were already struggling to pay are even further out of reach now. 
Um, I think this just helps to point out that while we do need more affordable housing, we also can't solve all of these issues just by building more housing, because part of the problem is inherent to capitalism and housing being treated as a commodity. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, with what you were talking about, about vacant housing and like, potentially repurposing that, I think we've seen that cities can like repurpose old structures or even erect new building structures if needed, like if the situation calls upon them to do it. Um, Like in New York, and I think throughout the country, we saw like field hospitals to treat primarily COVID patients put up Mm. like seemingly overnight, like instantaneously. And as an example, my undergraduate university, like many other universities across the country, sent students home in March because of the pandemic for the rest of the school year. And that resulted in like hundreds of vacant dorm rooms and that could house like thousands of people. Um, and the university like refused to uh, open up those dorms to unhoused people in the area. But then they did begin to use their athletic facilities. Like uh, they used like a basketball court in the gymnasium as a field hospital. And of course that's like really good and needed that they used that area for the field hospital. But I just like want to see that same energy being applied to like providing shelter for unhoused people. Yes. Like I don't know why it's just like it's such a uh, imbalance of priorities. And like I don't want to like roast my university like too much, but I th- really think it's like oh like we are afraid that all these tenured professors are gonna get COVID, so we want to make this field hospital in case they get sick. But like the broader community, oh that's like. A secondary concern for us or something like that and it just doesn't feel knowing where you went to undergrad we should be roasting it harder yeah (laughs) not not you but the school no yeah yeah uh, yeah on later episodes uh, (laughs) stay tuned yeah yeah so i kind of wanted to talk about this like additional layer of intersectionality of uh populations that are unhoused um, which is the very high rates of veterans that end up without homes. And, like, I will be anti-military until I'm blue in the face. Um, but I think because of the economic system that our country is built upon and because of there being very limited opportunities for low-income young people, particularly young-income I'm sorry, low-income young men of color. Um, So, you know, there's very high rates of veterans that end up without homes, and they're often people who are pushed into the military for socioeconomic reasons and then are maybe saddled with medical bills or do not get the assistance they need once they're back in the United States. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because I'm always trying to think about ways to talk about these topics along various parts of the political spectrum. And conservatives are always going on about veterans. And I feel like this is like a a point where we can put pressure on people within housing policy um, and like kind of push them to open their eyes in this direction. So we have enough empty houses to literally house everyone who needs housing. Um, And of course we just need to be redistributing these resources. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, yeah, it's def- I think it's definitely on you know institutions and governments to create those changes, um, but we haven't really seen that. Uh, just to 
give an example of an institution or government that's been unsympathetic. Uh, <laughs> government Governor Andrew Cuomo recently. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Um, <laughs> So many thoughts about him, but uh, we're going to get into it. I we have rants coming. Yeah, uh, he recently put out an executive order that uh, prevents landlords from filing cases to evict people if the reason for those evictions was that they weren't able to pay rent. So, like, all right, like on its face, it sounds good. Like, okay, like tenants who can't pay rent can't be evicted for that. Like, cool. But like, if you really look into like the text of the executive order. Uh, some real problems arise, and like just a couple of those are like one, that moratorium on evictions only goes through August twentieth for now, and like with the trajectory of the pandemic, it's not like people are suddenly going to be able to pay rent again on August twenty first. Like that's just not the way it's going to be. Um, and also, the kicker is that the tenant, if they were facing an eviction case, uh, has to prove that they were. Uh, collecting unemployment or insurance or like otherwise demonstrate quote-unquote financial hardship in some way um, in order to Uh. show that like they can't like they weren't able to pay rent for that for like uh, their financial hardship which feels wrong on just like so many levels and to me it just sounds like they're means testing a person's right to housing it's like oh like demonstrate how much you're in need Yes. So that we can continue to provide a roof over your head, which doesn't means mean, yeah. testing housing is just like classic Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> it's like just like a chef's kiss emoji of a Cuomo moment. Literally, <laughs> so much. Yeah, um, and also the executive order doesn't block new eviction cases from being filed, so like landlords can still bring tenants to court uh, for a slew of reasons, so long as they're not related to like non-payment of rent, mm-hmm. quote unquote, not related to. Uh, so that means that right now there are a ton of people who are being sued for eviction cases. And in New York City, housing courts reopened on June 22nd, and like they're literally a mess right now. Um, mm. We already know how like convoluted court systems are, but you know, tenants who are being brought to court by their landlords right now, uh, procedurally, they're just like being inundated with like esoteric language. Um, almost all of them come without a lawyer present. And the only tenants who have even come close to succeeding on their eviction cases were the few who were able to get an attorney from legal aid who helped them reach a settlement. Um, And of course, it's like none of those tenants like want to be there and they're only there because like they want to be able to have a roof over their heads. And like it just seems like the judges are just granting evictions one after another. They don't have very much patience for their long docket. And for anyone who can't appear in court at their scheduled time, like for any number of reasons, like they're busy or like <laughs> someone in there or they're sick because there's a pandemic there's happening, a pandemic. just like any reason. <laughs> like if they just can't appear in court, like the judge is just like granting that eviction automatically, which is Absolutely. just like, I, so can't, I, I can't even fathom that. Well, and, and again, I know I kind of mentioned this on last week's episode, but I work with predominantly refugee communities and so if any one of my teens parents or families gets a notice in the mail that they can't read because they do not read English um, and the letter was sent to them in English um, they won't ever show up to something because they would not they just wouldn't have the information Mm -hmm. 
It's just, it's fucked for so many reasons. But yes, the reason why, even if you're not in New York State, you should be paying attention to Cuomo is for a number of reasons. One, often um, people will point to states like New York or California or these larger population states um, when their governors are doing something because often it can be translated into an executive order on the federal level or like it sets precedence for other states or things like that. But also, um, it is very likely that he will be running for president the next time around. Um, he, I know. It's it's absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it like, But he's definitely been, like, um, doing all the things yeah. that people do who are about to, like, announce their presidency. Um, and again, this wouldn't be for, you know, the 2020 election, but for the 2024 election. So probably announced in 2022. I'm calling it in this moment. Thank you so much if I get it right, but I know that I will be. Um, <laughs> the thing is, it's just like, he is such a sleaze ball, a sleaze ball. And the other thing that I'm just going to vent about that is not necessarily, like, on the same level, but his brother, Chris Cuomo is a famous news anchor on CNN. And they have this, like, machismo, Italian-American dynamic. I'm convinced that that they still bathe together. I think they take baths together. This is my hot take. (laughs) Yeah, I, well, yes, we love to see the hot takes. So there's, like, so many clips of them just, like, literally hamming it up. Like, Chris is, like, you gotta call. You gotta call mom. And Andrew's like, "Oh, mom's. I'm mom's favorite." And they're like doing all this shit on television, like during a pandemic or during these things. And it's literally just leaning into a circus. So a we have a person who's going to be running for president that has a very prominent anchor on CNN, and b they both are true nightmares. I. Can't even. I also, just, like, Governor Cuomo I let thousands of people die from COVID. So, yes. of course, just throwing right. that out there as a reminder to everybody. I think people forget that it was nursing his fault. homes won't wouldn't be responsible for COVID deaths there. Yeah, when I went to get tested for COVID, I went to um, a city MD and they like left me in the room. They had to go get stuff. Whatever. Point being, on the TV in the room that I was in, they were playing whatever news that like Cuomo was on. And he was like, New York's going to come out of this economically stronger than ever. And just, like, talking about the economy. And I was sitting there waiting to be tested for COVID. And, like, my my roommate had it and stuff. Anyway, I was just like, I am in hell. This is the proof that I am literally in hell. So, yeah, we hate him. Yeah, Um, we hate him. And the other thing about Cuomo, which is a huge issue in the Bay Area as well, is he just takes so much money from big real estate. Like, he Mm. is fully just in the pocket of developers and, like, huge conglomerates that own tons of buildings. So, yeah, he sucks. Great transition back into what we were. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So moving on, I guess, I mean, this isn't like a separate topic because, I mean, we wanted to talk about the ways that renting and all its difficulties and challenges disproportionately affect black communities. And of course, that's not a separate topic from what we were just talking about, about who gets affected by uh, housing court injustices and, you know, who gets affected by things like that. So I guess historically... Uh, because of practices like redlining, Black people have not been welcomed in the housing market. And I know a couple people had thoughts about that. 
Yeah. I just wanted to, like, baseline us in, like, the mythology of America and, like, the myths that America was built upon, which is, like, a promise of home ownership and land ownership and many exclusionary policies restricted any sort of power, including voting, to white landowning men. Um, You know, thinking of Manifest Destiny and, like, the idea of westward expansion into like and like the the homesteading era um and all of the other bullshit that made the colonial mindset of ownership to become so pervasive and have like real long-lasting effects for the nation as a whole yeah and just a quick like historical recap about redlining so after we love to see it we stand yes. <laughs> Um, after not slavery, redlining, not redlining. Yeah, just history. <laughs> history. Going yes. back to our roots, reading about exactly. you know, um, yeah. So after slavery was abolished in 1865, um, there was this combination of different legal policies that worked to keep neighborhoods segregated. Um, redlining is one of the most notable ones. Um, so black residents of cities were denied home loans, which made it a lot harder to afford home ownership. Also, developers could only get loans from the government if they agreed to keep the housing they were building segregated, and local governments had policies preventing Black people and other people of color from moving into majority white neighborhoods. So all these things kind of work together. Yeah, and, like, it's called redlining, as Julia mentioned, for a reason. Like, think literal red lines around Mm -hmm. parts of cities where developers and local governments would allow or not allow Black families to live. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I just want to plug this project that's called Mapping Inequality. Um, The URL is kind of complicated, but you can Google Mapping Inequality um, or use the other search engine of your choice. Um, (laughs) Not to promote Google, but... Uh, look it up on Bing. Yeah. Not sponsored. Um, DuckDuckGo, I think, is actually the one that people are using now. But anyway. Ask, ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves, yeah. Bring it back. Bringing um, it back forever. But yeah, so basically this has um, a history of redlining in different cities. Um, so you can look up to see like what the policies were in your area because a lot of them still have ongoing impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this legal discrimination codified into policies persisted until 1968, which was when the Fair Housing Act was passed. Yeah, and like just one other note on redlining, Um, it didn't just limit where Black people could live, but it also limited what kind of housing they had access to. So if we're thinking about like the post-World War II GI Bill, Happy Days scenario, uh, where homeownership goes up because the men coming back home are buying houses in new subdivisions, um, this was almost without exception unavailable to Black people. Uh, African-Americans, especially in cities and suburbs, were essentially shuttled into neighborhoods where buying a house wasn't even an option. In other words, they were driven to rent. And this is at the same time um, that homeownership is becoming the central vehicle for wealth accumulation in the country. The government on every level, as as Laura uh, and as Julia were hinting at, um, is incentivizing homeownership and making it the most attractive way to house uh, and grow wealth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sorry about that. Uh, but even, even today it is like the number one vehicle for passing wealth on between generations in America, um, is homeownership. Um, so when you think about the fact that the vast, like if we think about the, the implications of this policy and when it ended, which is pretty recently, 
Um, when you think about the fact that the vast majority of black people were for generations kept from building generational wealth by being kept out of home ownership, the massive wealth gap between white and black Americans starts to make a little more sense. As Julia said, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 put an end to legal redlining, although we'll probably talk about some other discriminatory practices in real estate that went on. But even then, that's not that long ago. Like, my parents were born in the 60s. Um, I'm white. Both of my parents grew up in houses that their parents owned or were at least paying mortgages on. Like, that's a form of generational wealth that was intentionally put out of reach for the vast majority of African Americans who were born just a generation earlier than most of our listeners. Yeah. And like you said, even after the Fair Housing Act, a lot of other forms of legal inequality persisted. Um, there are lots of informal, like semi-legal ways that this would happen. Um, but a notable one is that black families were targeted for subprime loans. Um, in the 2000s, they were 50% more likely than white families to receive a subprime loan. Um, and those are loans that have higher interest rates. They're harder to pay back. They're basically intentionally given by banks to people who they think will have a hard time paying back the loan. Um, and Kianke Yamada Taylor calls this predatory inclusion, which I like. So it's sort of like there starts to be legal inclusion, but there's still these policies that are making it harder for Black people to get a fair deal when it comes to housing. Mm -hmm. um, and this meant that the 2008 recession hit Black homeowners way harder, with a lot more of them losing their homes and dealing with other forms of debt. Um, there are still a ton of existing impacts of redlining as well. That didn't go away even after yeah. the Fair Housing Act passed. Um, a lot of neighborhoods in many cities are still pretty segregated. Um, and there are so many impacts of historical racism in housing and urban planning. Um, there, I mean, there's literally just so many, it's kind of hard to even name all of them. But some big ones are fewer, worse outdoor spaces like parks, um, natural areas in neighborhoods of color. Um, worse access to public transit and less safe streets for walking and biking. Um, lots of forms of environmental racism with industrial sites and other like toxic facilities being put in neighborhoods of color rather than wealthier, whiter neighborhoods. Um, and all of those issues compound to just make it much harder for black people and other people of color and harder just generally for poor and working class people to access safe, affordable housing. Yeah, totally. Um, I wanted to also expand on gentrification, um, especially with COVID. So uh, in my defense, I did try to look into different cities, but like most of what came up was about New York because New York is like a prime site of gentrification. It happens in every major city, but New York is so dense and huge and people both move here and travel to here just all, constantly all the time. Um, and for those reasons, that's also why it's like the epicenter of the pandemic. So the other articles I found from other places mostly were like, we interviewed business owners about their hardships during COVID. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> that's yeah. not what I'm looking yeah. for. I don't know right. why we're like, oh, these poor business owners who gentrified this area now have to close their business. I'm like, well, okay. So anyway, gonna gonna talk about New York again, but with the disclaimer that I am sorry. Um, <laughs> no sorry, except for I do apologize for like New York centric things. So anyway, um, yes, what does gentrification look like in New York leading up to the pandemic? Great question. So Mike Bloomberg, an official enemy of the pod, enemy never the paid pod. us never paid us our money for that Patreon episode. Yeah, he's an absolute. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolute enemy. And he owes us $5,000. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, hey us, bitch. <laughs> so when he was serving his illegally long tenure as mayor, or petty dictator, as Kellen referred to him on our Bloomberg episode, <laughs> <laughs> on our Patreon, shameless plug, um, so he served from 2002 to 2013. And during that time, he implemented some serious, like, trickle-down economics type things. Um one of which being that, on the one hand, he banned smoking in public spaces and implemented taxes on, um, s- like, soda and other, like, sugary drinks as ways to criminalize being poor, essentially. Um, he also really incentivized the growth of the tech industry in New York, which attracted a lot more young professionals. Like, of course, there's always been a lot of, like, young professionals moving to New York, but that was another industry coming in, and that's it. a huge fucking industry now. Um, and some and, of the like, worst types of people. Yes, and the absolute worst people. (laughs) Um, And because Manhattan was already so oversaturated, um, a lot of transplants coming to New York City started moving into Brooklyn and Queens, more so than they were before. So, for example, most a a lot of people have probably heard of Williamsburg, the most gentrified place in Brooklyn, um, partially because it's on the water and it's one of the closest areas to getting to Manhattan. So, in the 80s, a six-unit apartment building was sold. This was in one of the articles I looked at. So, it was sold to this woman um, for $40,000, a six-unit apartment building. And that same building in 2016 sold for $2.7 million. I don't know the math of what that inflation is, but, like, it's huge. It's huge. It's yeah. I, I just wanted to say really quickly, my, my sister, um, who lived in New York City for 12 years... Um, moved into Williamsburg in, I think, um, like 2006. Um, and it, it was, and I would visit her all the time and it was like, just, it was just starting to like have things happen. And then of course she, she got pushed out. Everyone she knew got pushed out because it's like a totally different area, but it's also like, I just remember going there and it just being such a totally different place than if I go there today. Of course, like, as we all know, who experienced gentrification in our cities. Yeah, Williamsburg happened really fast, as does all gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, so more things that we can blame on Bloomberg. During his time <laughs> as mayor, there was a large pattern of... Um, like, high-profiling rezoning of public and private land to facilitate luxury um you know condos and apartments and this led to since 1998 this isn't entirely bloomberg but a lot of it was during bloomberg 18 hospitals closed have closed in new york since then and big surprise most of those hospitals were in outer boroughs where there tend to be more lower income communities and communities of color which is also where covid has hit the hardest. Yeah. And just to add, the work of shutting down hospitals to make way for luxury condos is continuing under Mayor Bill de Blasio, just in case mm. you were under the impression that he was not also an enemy of the pod. <laughs> I've said this on the podcast before, and I will say it again. I'm still really <laughs> mad at this DSA dude who tried to convince me that de Blasio was good for the working class, and he would not let me like get a word in during this conversation. And I was just like standing there stuck right in this, in this, you know, monologue of his. Anyway, you know who you are. I'm still mad at you. You probably don't listen to the podcast, but. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> doubtful, doubtful you listen to anything I say. So anyway, still mad. Um, transformative justice, but also I don't think he feels bad, so I don't forgive. Uh, <laughs> he's not True. accountable, and therefore I don't have to forgive. Yeah, no um, forgiveness warranted. Exactly. So um, currently, what does that look like during COVID? So the already gentrified areas, um, like Williamsburg and like some parts of Bushwick, uh, tend to tended to not be hit as hard at the start of the pandemic because uh, the like young professionals, quote unquote, it's like a gross term. Or if you're in DC, the like yo pros, as they call them. No. The what? Yo pros. Uh. That's what everyone in DC calls like the young professional. It's I literally couldn't even figure that abbreviation out until I looked at young professionals. I know this because when I was looking for housing in DC, um, (laughs) when I was there, people's housing ads would be like, seeking other yo pros and i was like i don't know what the fuck that means <laughs> I, I wish i had pulled my own eardrums out rather than have heard <laughs> well now everyone knows if you're gonna move to dc and in housing ads says they want you to be a yo pro don't fucking move there um, <laughs> and and like tech worker types yeah the these types of people we we all know who this is tend to be able to work from home easily their jobs mostly are on the computer anyway Meanwhile, um, East Brooklyn, which is primarily um, a black area and parts of Bushwick where there's a really high population of Latinx immigrants were hit the hardest during COVID. And this is of Brooklyn specifically and some of the hardest in in New York City at large. But yeah, New York is is massive. So um, we're at the hardest and the residents of those areas are a lot more likely to be essential workers as in workers that still have to physically go to work and not and are not able to work from home um and are less likely to have access to health care especially because there's no hospitals nearby or very few hospitals nearby and the same patterns were seen in neighborhoods in queens like long island city um is a pretty gentrified area and the um neighborhoods outside of that were hit pretty hard and of course these patterns are happening in pretty much every major city this is not specific to new york it's just very easy to make an example out of new york because new york is insanely large and dense and honestly shouldn't be one city but what can you do (laughs) it didn't used to be but now it is and it's not great (laughs) (laughs) yeah big yikes um on the very other side of the state (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Buffalo, like, seems to fluctuate in rank between the third to sixth most segregated city in the country. I think right now we are at six, but I, it has, like, changed through these lists as they do, you know? Um, so I don't know exactly, like, I know that before COVID started, and I think it's kind of, like, ramped up while COVID's happening, um... There's been a lot of shady construction going on, particularly on the east side of Buffalo, which is um, because of redlining, where the majority of black folks live in this city. So there's a lot of vacant land also um, on the east side of Buffalo because it's where the largest amount of like um, condemned houses were. So like a lot of houses being taken down by the city. Um So there's a lot of vacant land and it's being bought up by the university here. The university at Buffalo has a medical campus in this area that it's like rapidly expanding and like just like churning out professional class vibes. It's dark. Anyway, 
There, so there's this thing, if you haven't heard of it, um, once all the land around a certain house has um, been bought, they are able to evict other, like whoever the homeowner is, even if they own their home, from their home, if if like they own all the land around it. It's through this freaking thing called eminent domain. Um, so what's happening in the city of Buffalo is that there are a lot of black families being evicted from their homes, and many folks have had these homes for generations. Um, and so, like, these corporations are just, like, taking taking over yeah. that area. Yeah, I wanted to, just because we are, we have been pretty New York-focused, take us out of New York for just a second and mention, I'm not going to, like, try to recap all of this, but... Um, it won't be the most recent Trillbillies episode uh, when this podcast comes out, but one of the very recent um, Trillbillies episodes, they talked a lot about gentrification in Kentucky, um, both in the context of um, where uh, the Trillbillies is headquartered, which is in Whitesburg, which is eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, and in terms of Louisville, which is the biggest city. So again, not to totally recap what was said on another podcast, y'all should listen on a bashed plug for the Trillbillies, as I always do. Um, but we can see a lot of this stuff playing out both in um, uh, an episode, uh, an event that was that was discussed wherein, and this was around floating around Twitter too, um, a man was squatting, um, aka like living in an, a, a house that was had absentee landlords. It was the situation that we were talking about at the top of the episode um, where people own homes, but they're not occupied. So an unhoused person was able to just stay in one of these houses um, the owners came back to do some landscaping, realized that somebody had been living in the house, and then waited until two in the morning for that person to come back and shot him and killed him. Um, and the other episode event that was relayed in the episode, aka the podcast section, I'm sorry that I'm using that word repeatedly in confusing ways, um, that was discussed is, of course, the murder of Breonna Taylor. Um, and her murder is an example of the ways in which law enforcement works with gentrification, works with developers essentially to clear people out of places, whether that's by essentially arresting them, taking them out of their homes and putting them in prison, or through literal murder, um, creating space for gentrification to come in. Uh, Brianna Taylor does live in a gentrifying area of Louisville, or did live. Um, and her murder documents are now suggesting was actually tied up in an explicit police effort to clear the area. So these are all really deeply intertwined issues. Yeah, that's a really, really important point. Um, and just just to give other examples where this is happening that aren't uh, like major, major East Coast, West Coast cities, um, like because of, as you were saying, Kellen, the like relationship between law enforcement and predatory landlords um there's like this problem now where like these huge conglomerate style developers they buy up these buy up like a ton of properties and then you know because they're only interested in turning a profit like they'll allow tenants to move in at a relatively low cost but then on the flip side in order to save money for themselves um those tenants won't have any rights uh the landlords would increase rent every year they won't make repairs even when they're direly needed. And it's kind of all part of this orchestrated effort, as you were saying, Kellen, to 
push vulnerable communities out of those communities to make room for gentrification. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about New York and San Francisco a lot this episode, and, like, this thing is happening here at very high levels, but also it's particularly bad in the South. Um, in this article that I read, uh, there was research that was done by the Princeton Eviction Lab that found that nine of the ten highest evicting large U.S. cities were not only located in the South, but also had populations that were at least 30% Black. Um, and it's like those cities, one common feature that they shared was that there were uh, a ton of apartment buildings and housing complexes there that uh, afforded their tenants no protections whatsoever. Um, I think Tulsa, Oklahoma, and North Charleston, South Carolina were two cities that were cited in that article as southern cities where this is happening at high rates. Um, so next we wanted to talk about things that the people have been doing in terms of direct action and things like that to uh, take matters into their own hands and demand changes. And like not to go back to New York City, but because I live in New York City, I guess I can speak to something that I recently followed and got involved in here. This was uh, this uh, was an unlawful eviction that happened in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, which is a historically black neighborhood, um, at 1214 Dean Street. And it was an action that was initiated by this uh, grassroots organization that I've done some volunteering and organizing with called Equality for Flatbush. Um, they're a primarily black and brown led organization that's been around in Brooklyn for about seven years fighting mostly gentrification and police violence. Um, they also have a mutual aid branch that was started up um, in response to the pandemic that um, mostly handles food and supply distribution. So basically what was happening at 1214 Dean Street was that there were these two white landlords who were uh, renting out rooms in this like two-story house, but it was like an illegally renting out, they were illegally renting out those rooms. Um, mostly to black and brown tenants, one of whom actually recently had uh, brain cancer and had surgery. Um, it was just like a horrid situation. But it was this two-story house. I, I mean, I, I was there, so I saw, you know, its size. But, you know, they had made nine rooms out of that house, which basically was just like nine, like, just like uh, divided, like divided up rooms. They weren't like actual not there weren't actually like nine rooms split off by walls oh, wow. um and they were charging rent for all nine of those rooms um so then th for some reason that i couldn't find out exactly like i in my research i couldn't find it but for whatever reason those landlords began um to evict those tenants um but they didn't do it through like some formal process not that a formal process would have made it better but like <laughs> uh there was like no paperwork filed in the course like nothing was found about there was no like like they didn't undergo any procedure procedure they just really started to uh forcibly move those tenants out so one morning this was this happened about last week one landlord began moving people's belongings out of the apartment without notice like she had gotten a u-haul truck and was like taking tenants mattresses out of their apartments Jesus. when they weren't there oh my god and there was also a report that she had shut off the Wi-Fi, the communal Wi-Fi in the house, until tenants uh, were forced to give her, like, a firm move-out date. Um, and then, of like, Equality for Flatbush found out about this and organized uh, direct action at that house to hold those landlords accountable. Um, 
And so when I went, there was like a bunch of people just like protesting there and the landlords came by and like they were shouted at and they very quickly walked by without saying anything to anyone as they do. <laughs> and um, we were told we somebody had basically found the landlords uh, cell phone numbers and we were told to flood their calls and uh, flood their phones with calls and texts. I think both of their voicemail boxes ended up being full and they were, uh, I'm sure, getting a ton of texts as well. Um, but when I texted one of the landlords, I was like, why are you not uh, allowing your tenants to move back in? She replied, oh, they have keys. They can go in at any time, which I mean, I think a bunch of other people had gotten that same message from her. And of course, uh, you know, we don't know whether that's true or not, but knowing everything else she's done, I would tend to believe that it's not true. Um, but because of the direct action that ensued, it was actually... Like what happened was uh, the tenants that night, because the, the the process of like the landlord taking people's belongings into their apartment started that morning. That evening, um, the tenants were actually able to go back into their living spaces and uh, basically sleep there overnight, which is good. And then people continued to show up for the rest of the week, um, basically just to like hold the landlords accountable because they were they live nearby. Um, and I think people are still there or there's still some effort going on in relation to that property. But like the problem with those two landlords as well is like, like we were saying, and like so many other landlords, they own so many other properties in the area. Um, I think one of them owns like this children's clothing boutique that Hillary Clinton went to back in like 2017 oh or something. Oh my God. Which, you know, dozens of reasons <laughs> not to support that. Um, and then the other one owns like some cafe. So, you know, Wait, it's why not, was she at a children's clothing boutique? I think she was buying something for a grandchild or something like that. Okay. Love it. Like, un, unimportant, but I'm also just like, what was she? Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. When I was, I googled this clothing boutique and that was like the first thing that came up. Oh my god. Um, but, so yeah, they like own these like commercial properties as well. So it's like, okay, you can, like, it, like they just have so much power because they're so widespread throughout the city in so many ways. Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of really exciting housing activism happening during this time, um, partly just out of necessity because so many more people are dealing with threats of eviction or not being able to pay rent. Um, one thing that I wanted to note is there's this website called antievictionmap.com. Um, it's this project by a bunch of activists and scholars. Um, it's basically a worldwide map of different um, eviction protections and then also different rent strikes that are currently happening. Um, so like I was looking at it and I saw there's a couple others on Dean Street right near that building that you were talking about, Bianca. So... I feel like that can be, you know, one way that folks can connect with activism Amazing. that's happening in their area, um, because it, it does have stuff outside of <laughs> the Bay Area and New York. Um, and then I think we also just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the models of rent relief that different cities have been implementing, um, potentially some things that might be a bit yeah. better than what's happening in New York. Um, <laughs> you know, not a high bar, but there you go. Um, so I can talk a little bit about, um, there, in San Francisco, there was recently a permanent eviction ban. So basically, if you weren't able to pay rent due to something pandemic related, um, like medical debt or, um, loss of employment, you never have to, you basically can never be evicted for that unpaid rent. Um, so it right now only applies to rent that you didn't pay from mid-March through July, um, this could be extended. 
Um, and like you were saying about the New York policy, Bianca, this still doesn't really go far enough because people can still mm-hmm. be evicted for lots of other reasons. But it basically means that if you couldn't pay your rent during that time for something pandemic related, you can never be evicted for that. Um, and unsurprisingly, <sighs> landlords are trying oh to sue the city to eliminate this policy. So this fight is definitely not over, but it is a good step. Um And, you know, I'm not always the biggest fan of electoral politics, but a huge reason why this was able to happen is because DSA member and endorsed candidate Dean Preston um, introduced this policy. So I also think it's a good example of how, you know, local electoral work can have good impacts when done well. Sure. I'll leave it We love to see when democracy can exist. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Rare, um, so, okay, so r- right when COVID started, we were supposed to have an entire episode with um, organizers in Berlin who uh, were really the leaders within um, the Berlin actions that I'm about to talk about. So hopefully we will be able to do that again in the future. Um, they had to postpone because everything, like, literally blew up because of COVID, of <laughs> Didn't course. one of their roommates, like, have COVID? Is that yeah. Happened? Yeah. It was, like, there was a whole... There was a bunch of things happening. <laughs> so, but, okay. In Berlin, Germany, 85% of residents are renters. So, that's that's pretty high percentage uh, for reference. Um An active movement of renters has forced the city into a five-year rent freeze, affecting 1.5 million housing units. The legislation legislation bans rents that are above 20% of the city's average rent for comparable size. The big real estate magnates are characterizing these events as a disaster, with some big landlords now being forced to lower rents. The next step of the movement has been delayed because of all the things, and Germany's ruling judicial body will weigh the constitutionality of a proposal by renters in Berlin to bring all of the biggest landlords, those with those with over 3,000 units of housing, oh into public ownership. Yes! Yes. Nice. So they're, they're doing some frickin' work over there. Uh, our dearest darling Hope wanted us to share about something that's going on in Milwaukee. There is a Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union, which is an all-volunteer organization fighting to end housing insecurity and the commodification of housing altogether. Through direct action, they are organizing to challenge evictions, win demands from neg- negligent landlords, and work towards community control of housing for everyone. And just served their first landlord with demands, and, you know, the company was very shook and confused. We um, love direct action. <laughs> love, we love direct action. Yeah, love when a company is shook. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, so this obviously, like, isn't as, isn't as much of a win as these other, like, larger things, but I just... We were kind of talking before the episode started and I wanted to give a like alternate option because like there are people in this life who come into funds that allow them to own houses or they come into houses themselves and maybe they are also socialists. I happen to rent from someone who is in such a situation. (laughs) Um, 
so my my landlord slash friend is uh is an incredible woman and she like when i asked when i asked her if she had a space available um we just kind of like talked through what made sense um for her in terms of covering like part of the mortgage and like we never i never signed a lease i watched her cats a few times for a security deposit um and we like collectively choose different things we want to have happen in like the communal spaces of the house like the attic the basement um the backyard and stuff like that and like i pay 325 in rent um she knows i'm not gonna screw her over i'm and like i know she's not gonna screw me over and like it's also known that like she would prefer to not like pay for an electrician if she could like look up how to do things or try to like figure it out and like she knows I'm okay with, like, helping or doing whatever because it's, like, we share this space. We live in this space together. And, yes, it's technically her house, but she, like, makes sure that it's – it feels like a communal shared experience. And that's, like, a wild thing. But I know there are people who, again, like, own own property. And, like, all I guess I will say is – if you have, if you can, like, please remember that, like, housing around you is way overpriced and, like, consider really making a situation equitable for, for folks who live in your, in your house, in your space. Also, all property is theft, so I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it's hard. I have a great landlord, but yes, also that. <laughs> Um, but I think that is the end of our show. Okay, that was our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Um, you can also visit our website, seasonofthebee.com. And please give us money on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash seasonofthebitch. Um, we have a Discord, and we recently started an abolition reading group that you can join through our Patreon. Um, so that's just one of the amazing benefits you can get. We also have bonus episodes for our Patreon subscribers where we talk about lots of fun things, like our drug use. (laughs) (laughs) We're truly just starting a new series. Employers, I don't use drugs. (laughs) Yeah, our alleged No employers will listen to this, I promise you. (laughs) We can also take that out. We don't have to. I don't care. And finally, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and wherever you're listening to us right now. Love you all. Bye. Love you so much. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Yes. That was amazing. Oh my God. Bitch. Oh.